This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really, we have a bike translator. Uh, okay, this is awkward, but this bike says he'd appreciate it if you removed his skull pattern saddlebags. He feels self-conscious about them around all the other bikes, and he says you're not fooling anyone. You mostly ride with your golfing buddies. <laughs> Listen, I'm just the messenger here. Oh, no, I don't want to say that. I think you made yourself clear. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. You're through again to that Millwall podcast, and this is another edition of Who Are You? We're lucky enough this week to have a special guest. Most of you know him off uh, from online and Twitter, and he's written, I think, three now, coming on to four Millwall-based books. Um, knows a lot about the old teams and whatnot, and a lot of you definitely know. And uh, we are pleased to welcome Mervyn Payne. Good afternoon, Mervyn. Hi, Mickey. How you doing? You all right? Actually, yeah, not too bad. The process of this is that we go through 20 questions. We learn a bit about you, a bit about your meal history, uh, why you got into yep. the wall, and the questions should really just flow through. Obviously, the first question is really easy. Uh, your name is obviously, we've just said that. But, I mean, what's your yep. Twitter account? What's your uh, handle on Twitter? Or, um, or how can people get hold of you, obviously, depending, obviously, how you yep. know about this for your book? Yeah, I'm at Merv Payne on Twitter. Yeah, that's it. So they can, they can get me on there. I miss you. Yeah, you're very appreciative. Yeah. <laughs> I think Twitter's taken a dark side over the last year or two. It just seems to have, um, depending on your opinion, within your set closeness is okay. But sometimes when someone has a look in and see something, then all of a sudden people jump on you and it's, um, I don't know, you've got to take Twitter as a made-up place. It's not real. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I've, I've learned when to sort of like, I've learned the hard way when not to bother arguing with anyone or when to just put my phone away and, and, and or ignore stuff. But it's still very hard. You see someone say something and then um, 
and you, you can't help fighting back and then you realize and you just you've just been reeled in so yeah it's, it's it's tricky but yeah you have to learn when to pick your battles really and there's certain things i just don't even bother discussing it's not even worth even starting on because you don't get anywhere no it, it's it's easier just to think about it to yourself and not think or dm someone you know yeah, 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 yeah. Have you seen what yeah. these guys do? So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There is, we do have swearing. You're allowed to swear on here if you want to swear. Um, that's up. Okay. So, so we start with question two. Obviously, we know where your name is and all that. How the hell did you come to start supporting Millwall? Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. I was brought up in in Ballam. Um, my mum and all her side, all her family were all Chelsea fans. My dad and all his family were Millwall fans. Um, he was from Campbell and Peckham, and when they got when he married my mum, they sort of bought a place roughly in the middle. And basically, when I was seven, uh, I was doing my mum's head in in the house, and my dad announced he was going down to Millwall. He stopped going for a, for a little while after the Ipswich trouble. He sort of knocked it on the head for a bit because it was a bit a bit depressing and all the all the various problems down there. Um, decided he was going to go again, and he took me along, and that was it. Uh, I was. <coughs> That was September '79, and and that was it. I was hooked from there, really. Yeah, yeah. September '79, I was four. Yeah, right. No, I was <laughs> I was seven when I when I went. Yeah, I was just barely seven. So, but yeah, I remember it really well. And it was it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Really, I mean, we used to go, used to take me to the banger racing at Wimbledon, that sort of thing, and go fishing, which bored me shitless. To be honest, couldn't couldn't stand fishing, but. That was it. Once he took me to Mill, that was I was absolutely hooked on Mill, obviously, but football as well. Football in general, I just became just just mad on it straight away. Have you been missing the football? Oh God, yeah, definitely. I still wake up on Saturday morning. And you still feel a bit excited because it's Saturday. And then you remember then that it's off indefinitely, and you still keep checking your phone in the midweek to see what midweek games are on. But yeah, the, the sad thing is we're starting to get, actually get used to not having any football now, which is a bit it's quite quite depressing, really. Yeah. With no idea of when it's coming back as well. At least in the close season, you can count the days down to the first game, but uh, we've not even got that at the moment, which is which is pretty grim. No, no that's it. Obviously, a lot of work's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, soon it'll come back. So, what was your first? What was your first Millwall game? And obviously, what was your um, what was your memory or impression of that first game? Um, so, my first game we played Carlisle at home in a third division game. Um, it finished one nil. Kevin O'Callaghan scored. He was a bit of a star of the team at the time. He was only seventeen, but he was obviously destined for better things. Um, I think it was about five thousand at the den that day. And just my dad was being a bit cautious. He took me in the seats, the old, the old grandstand at the old den, uh, the old situation, lifting you over the turnstile so you had to pay for me, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and for me, the memory was when that. When the when the goal went in, the noise was unbelievable. Even though it was only like five thousand in there, and that was what really got me hooked because that you sort of crave that noise again. Um, so yeah, that was it. One nil, finished one nil. Um, still got the program now. Uh, two weeks later, we went again. We played Exeter at home, and my dad was a bit brave. He took me on the terraces, went on the cold blow lane end where he always liked to stand, and we were five nil up at half time. It was it was a cracker, um, and it. I remember distinctly half time a bloke walked past us on his way to the to the bar or the, to get a pie or whatever, and he said, "Oh, we'll get another five in the second half." And I actually thought they would because I thought they got five, you know, by half time it will it'll finish ten. Anyway, it finished five one, and there was some booze at the end because because they hadn't because because they had only only won five one. But 
I soon learned that was sort of typical of, typical of the um, hypercritical mill supporters, but uh, it was another, another side to, to, to like, really, yeah. I mean, the, the, obviously, with your first games, wasn't you, um, it touched you so much, obviously, with having a, a, a connection with your dad um, that you yeah, ended up writing yeah. your first book about it. I mean, how did the first book come about and how did that suddenly become, how did it suddenly go into flame? Because, I mean, I, I saw it through um, the Sabotage Times. Um, oh, so right, yeah. Right, that's, yeah, that's where it first got some, some oxygen. So, yeah, so, so, I mean... It was the thing was, I mean, with my dad, he was quite old school. He'd, he'd get up, go to work, come home, um, have his dinner, sit down, watch the telly, go to bed, and that was it. And weekend, he'd be busy doing stuff. So that was the only sort of thing I sort of really shared with him, to be honest. And other than that, we didn't have much, much sort of connection. Um, he didn't most of play football. We didn't really bother coming and watching him much because, yeah, it just wasn't, wasn't his thing. So the, the one thing we had was, was that, obviously, following football and Millwall and that. Um, and, and he had this obsession with Mill getting in the first division or the, the top of the Premier League, what you want to call it. It was the first division in them days. And he always told me this story about 72 when they missed out by like a point from Birmingham, finished third. And he was convinced that was their big chance gone. He said, oh, I'll never, they will never be in the first division in my lifetime. And so it became a bit of a holy grail for me to sort of make sure I saw Mill in the first division with my dad. And um, obviously it happened in 87, 88. Um, and then obviously... Fast forward a few years, uh, he passed away in 2007 and I was sitting down, I was, sounds a bit morbid, but it's not that, I mean, I was sitting down writing what I was going to sort of say at the funeral service and it went on a bit long, I was typing out, it went on for about three pages and it obviously wasn't realistic to, to use a church service and it became sort of a tribute to him which I posted on House of Fun, which I used to be on quite a lot of the time, the, the old House of Fun uh, forum and I just stuck it on there because I've been on there for years and I knew quite a few of the regulars on there. We used to meet up at matches, people like Paul, Paul Neve and, and people like that. So it was my way of sort of letting them know what had happened and sort of a tribute to him. And I forgot about it really. Then about a week, two weeks later, someone phoned me and said, oh, that, that story about your dad's all over the internet. And, and that was it. And at the time I was working at the Sunday Sport newspaper and um, we had a consult. Yeah, yeah, I worked there for years. I, yeah, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's not quite as interesting as it sounds, but yeah, but it was it was good. It was an interesting place to work. But I worked there for, for a good few years. Um, we had a chat come in on a consultancy basis, a fellow called James Brown, who was the creator of Loaded magazine. Yeah. So they were trying to shift the paper from the newspaper to sort of, sort of lads mag sort of thing. Didn't really work. But yeah, he was opposite me, and I used, I'd seen him quite a lot on telly. He was on a lot of these like hundred best goals or sort of, you know, these, these talking head things where they get the, the, the celebrity's opinion and he was always on there and I got chatting to him because he sat opposite me in the office and was always chatting about football, he's a big Leeds fan and um, I don't know how it came about but he saw the piece and at the time he was setting up Sabotage Time because he wanted like an online magazine and he said, would you mind if we use that as one of our first pieces? And I said, well, yeah, go for it. And that's when it really got, um, really became, what was nice about that was obviously fans of other clubs saw it and there was a comment section at that time, and there was fans of all clubs saying, I can really relate to it, and that's just like the story of how me and my dad, and we're, we're Everton fans, we're Liverpool fans, we're Wigan fans, and it was nice for that sort of reason. And James kept, kept saying to me, you know, you should turn it into a book, it's a good story, and I'd never really thought about it, and uh, I tried a few times, and it, it, it never really worked. And then so I sort of forgot about it, really, and then a few years ago, I was 
thinking, was keen on the idea, still always, always wanted to write a book, but never really got around to it. And it was like 30 years since the, 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 the promotion to the first vision. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a little, little sort of story about that. And I started writing. And as I was writing that, stuff from the story about me and my dad was sort of like, was, was, was woven into it, really, if you like. And it's like, it ended up becoming the story of me and my dad again. And that's what, because my dad does was really, it was based around that desperation to see Mill get in the first division for the first time. And yeah, and, that, and, that, and the end, in the end, it actually happened quite quickly. I did have a publisher interested in it a little bit, but that, that sort of tailed off. So I just published it myself at the end of 2018 and, and it sort of went from there. And uh, and yeah, I sort of, because the response was quite nice, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do some more because there's plenty more, I think, to be written about Mill, really. It's a lot of what's gone on. And that's where the uh, the second one come from and, and so on. And it's, it's sort of snowballed from there, really. I mean, I think the, as you said, I think the book... Um, has hit a lot of people. People really can um, connect with it. It, 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 it home with a lot of people. And that's across the whole of football, because I've seen some of the yeah. comments too. And um, obviously when, when we've done AMS, you kindly allowed us to put it on the website. Um, and yeah, that's right. Both yeah. parts of it. And, you know, yeah. the comments and people who, you know, oh, that's why I went, or they changed it from the dad to the granddad. Or an exactly, uncle. yeah, yeah, yeah. All exactly definitely, yeah. yeah. And you just think, you know, it must be just one of those working class. It was the only way back then. Dads were dads were were, were a different breed. It was a different generation. They were real men, <laughs> so yeah. like, in yeah. dockers, etc. It was, yeah. you know, and it was, I suppose, an only way of having a connection for that hour and a half, two hours. Absolutely, um, yeah on a weekday to, to get very close yeah. to your dad. So your dad got to see yeah. him in the FA Cup final as well. Sorry? Your dad got to see Millwall in the FA Cup final yes, as well. And so you were yeah, right. which again was, yeah, I know, which was was uh, a good one. So um, it was like the two things we sort of thought would never, especially when I started following our early 80s, they were, it was pretty tough times down there. You know, we were getting up two, 3,000 down there, struggling to stay clear of the fourth division. So the thought of getting into the first division and cup finals and that was and getting to Wembley was just unheard of. So yeah, to, to do both. I mean, I can't imagine there's many fans out of the whole football league that may ever get to sort of see their team in the top flight and in a cup final with, with the with, the, with the, the dad or the granddad or whatever, or the person that took them. So yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to think we've sort of achieved that. Yeah. So I mean, moving on through the questions and when we come back to yeah. the stories, hopefully we'll go through, but where did you normally sit then? Obviously, CBL halfway the seats or Elderton Road. Where was, where was your normal seats? And then obviously, yeah. special. First of all, yeah, my dad always liked standing on the cold blow quite quite far up. And obviously, because I was little, we couldn't do that. So we'd stand up, up at the cold blow. Funny thing, this reminds me of a few months back. Someone on Twitter, a Mill fan on Twitter. I can't remember the guy's name. I think it might. Be, I think he, I think his Twitter handle was Hobbsio. I think. Oh yeah. yeah, but yeah, he, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think he posted, he posted a photo of when he was mascot. I don't know if you remember this. I remember he this. He was mascot yes. from And it was like, I think, January 1984, Hull at home. And it, and it was sort of taken from like the, um, the main stand at Mill, looking towards the corner of the, of the cold on the halfway. And he stood there. And, um, and the picture was sort of cropped. And I messaged him. I said, oh, if, if you could have moved up a bit, you'd have, you'd have seen me and my dad, because that's where we always stood at a certain place. And he posted a full picture and there there sure enough was me stood talking to my dad behind him because we always 
was we was a bit we were stood at the, exactly the same place. I think it was the sort of the yellow bar level with the the, the floodlight base thing. The white remember the old white floodlight base with the lines on. We always stood level with them because a mate of mine used to go on the halfway line and he'd come down and we'd meet at the bottom before the match where the gate where the fences joined and have a chat. So we'd always stand there so I could so I could I sort of saw when he turned up. And yeah, I mean, I recognised my dad and his long, his, his, tradition, his trademark long black coat and me and my me, me old Parker. And it was quite weird sort of seeing that. And as I sort of got a bit bigger, we, we moved back in the cold blow. But for some reason, I always fancied the halfway line. I thought it was a, a better view of, of both halves of the game. So I think about 1985, when we went up with George Graham, the second half of that season, I, I persuaded him to, to move around there. And, and from then on, that was it. And, and again, I sort of moved closer further to the back when there was a big group of us used to go. And we ended up, yeah, being towards the back of the halfway. Well, it's nice to have a photo of your dad at football because, uh, yeah, especially back then, you wouldn't have took the photo yourself. No, exactly. Yeah, there was no, certainly there's no selfies or anything like that. So, yeah, you wouldn't even, and you just wouldn't have thought of taking it. You know, it was just, such a standard thing to do, just go, you just go out in the match, you know. So, yeah, but tonight, to have a photo of that was really good. And Hobson's got a lot of pictures. Um, mm. He's got a, a, an awful lot of pictures he, uh, he seems to yeah. have. So, so mm. the New Den, and obviously your dad got to see the New Den too. I mean, what's, yeah, your, yeah. what's your thoughts on the New Den? Is it is it a den or will it never, ever be, you know, the den? It's just the New Den. Yeah, it's, it's it's never going to be anything like the old den. But I suppose you know those sort of days have, have gone, unfortunately. But um, it, we've certainly made it a, a good home. I think. I mean, it's getting on for thirty years now. But um, when you can, there's a lot of other new sort of grounds who are far more soulless than the den. And I've always I've always said it's the, the fans that make the ground rather than the ground. And obviously, certain grounds the way they're laid out don't make the atmosphere any any better or, or sort of detract from the atmosphere. And I think a lot of people felt there perhaps should have been at least one big, instead of it being separated into two tiers, there should have been at least one big tier behind the goal, for example. But, I mean, you've only got to think about some of the some of the games we've had down there, like the Huddersfield playoff semi-final, the atmosphere, some of those. It, that, that's what, you know, you just have to make, I think it just takes a little bit more work at a ground like the Den or modern stadiums to, to, make, to get that atmosphere. But I think Millwall fans will create it wherever you put them. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh... The Huddersfield was one. I mean, I've, I've been in a few big games um, in the stadium and on pitch side, and I don't think mm. anyone, I don't think any other team can basically create the noise Millwall fans can create. The no. smaller the number no. seems to be, the louder they are. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that bug, once you get that Millwall bug, it, it, it's strange. Once, once you get it, you just don't seem to get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Your best ever... <laughs> What's your favourite all-time player? Right, yeah. I mean, for me, it's obviously there's, there's the obvious ones like Sheringham and Harris and that sort of thing. For me, this was something that uh, it sort of occurred to me when I was interviewing him for, for the book, The Ordinary Boys book. And that was the, I managed to interview Kevin O'Callaghan. Yeah. And I'd interviewed loads of players, loads of ex-players. And I mean, I worked, I, I did a bit of interviewing when I was at the sport, on the, the sort of sport side for the magazine, stuff like that. And it never fazed me really, but it was weird interviewing Kevin O'Callaghan, given that he was the the bloke that scored the first goal when I went down there and also scored the penalty that got us into the first division. It was quite a surreal sort of sort of experience, really. I mean, I was a bit like a thirteen year old girl bumping into Harry Styles in in Nando sort of thing. I mean, it was actually quite yeah, it was strange. And he's quite a 
sort of call laid back to a character. And it was nice because he, he, he sort of struggled to remember a lot of the things from the FA Youth Cup winning team, obviously. But once he started jogging his memory, he was quite enthusiastic about it, you know, and it was, that was really good. So, yeah, I think purely for that, that point, because obviously that first game, he scores that goal and there's that roar. And you, my first question is, who is it? You know, who is that? My dad told me it's Kevin O'Callaghan and he talks, tells me all about him and, you know, the, the sort of reputation he had at the time. And he went on to become like the most expensive teenager at the time. And, yeah, it sort of stuck. And, and then from the score, that penalty at Hull to get us in the first division, to come back to the club, you know, and, and sort of finish off what perhaps the class of 79 should have taken them to was, was, was a bit special. So I think he has to be, for me, just, just that sort of special player, really. And they uh, and they do the players from that era just seem to don't seem to have really any airs and graces as such. I mean, uh, I've done a, a special with John Sitton. Um, yeah. Myself and you, with what's well, yet to come out. Yeah, it's coming out shortly with um, Nick. Yeah. And they are just genuinely um, nice blokes who, who don't really think they've done anything special. No, no, it was there was there was probably jobs they could have got that would have paid more back then in the late seventies, you know, and but that was what they it was it was so I think I made the point in the book it was it was they played football purely out of love, you know they loved the game and they would have done anything for the game and and they fell in love with Millwall as well when um, Bob Pearson sort of took them down there and that was especially I mean um, the Scottish guy Alan McKenna he. Um, you know, some of the things he said was 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 really quite moving, really, about how much how passionate he was for the game, and how and he said you felt that from the fans as well, um, and you know that that's that's what it was. And I asked all of them. I think I mentioned this before, but I asked all of them when I was interviewing them for all Blue Boys about you know did they feel bitter or resentful about the players this in, in this day and age who can earn an absolute fortune doing what they did, and none of them none of them did, you know. They all said if they could change things, yeah. That's, <laughs> they all said um, they wouldn't. They wouldn't change it. They wouldn't do anything different. They'd, they'd rather be in that mill team of '79 than be one of these, you know, the modern day apprentices who don't have to clean boots, don't have to sweep the terraces down, and uh, and get paid tons of money right from the off. It's quite weird when we um, obviously it was what, a couple of weeks ago. Now I'm still doing the final edit on it. Um, yeah, because it was a bit low quality, so we've got to build it up a bit but yeah. I was quite amazed that Terry Sheridan was Nicky Chatterton's boot boy yeah yeah that's right yeah. he kept that right to the end as well you're like oh. yeah. yeah he probably wouldn't have been phased by that I mean one of the funny comments from Kevin O'Callaghan was that you know he said he hated that aspect of it because he was quite a self-assured guy he knew he was a good footballer um, and he said he was Barry Kitchener's apprentice which is a big ask at Millwall as you can imagine yeah. and he said he said one day, Kitch pulled me to one side and said, you're the worst apprentice I've ever had. Sort of joking about it, you know. He said, well, I didn't care. I didn't want to clean, but it's time to play football. And I think that sort of side of him, that, you know, he had a bit of swagger about it. And that, and that showed in his, in his play. And I think that's why he was one of the few to go on and carve out a really good career. But, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I learned around that time, I did a little bit of research in the Palace as well, because they were in a similar situation to have had a really good youth team. And Malcolm Allison started that there. And he actually stopped the whole apprentice thing. He stopped them cleaning boots and working. And he actually get, he got up somewhere else to do it. And he, he felt that... They, so he was a sort of, if you like, probably one of the ones that started off this whole culture where young footballers starting out didn't do the sort of menial task. And I wonder if perhaps that 
was a good thing or not. But uh, but yeah, it wasn't didn't phase them at all. They in fact they even enjoyed that. They they all said they enjoyed that aspect of it. You know, cleaning the pros' boots and tidying up and staying behind afterwards and doing little chores it didn't bother them at all. A friend of mine used to play for um, Southampton, a fellow I worked with many years ago, and he's um, he was the apprentice to Matt Letizia. Oh right, yeah, Matt Letizia's boots. And he was he was he was a training goalkeeper, but he said literally at yeah. the end of every every training session, Matt Letizia used to hang on for half an hour, an hour every day, and either take penalties yeah. or free kicks at him, and literally right. just sit there and do that. So every day he'd do that, and he said, you know. Uh, you know, out of time, and he he didn't make it um, for whatever reason. But you know, it's just one of those little stories with the pros that you think actually, mm. you know, that probably went a long way to helping someone out. Rather, yeah. you know, I can't yeah. see some of these stars now doing that. No, and I think someone like Leticia again, he's someone who just loves the game. It's all the way he played, and he was never he never seemed bothered about getting a big move. He, he probably easily could have got a big move somewhere, but his attitude, I think, was he was happy with his football there. And, didn't want to risk, and even now as a pundit, he's that similar sort of, similar sort of uh, personality, isn't he? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, question seven: favourite all-time manager? Yeah, I went for George Graham on that. Um, it might say again, it might be a bit controversial. We've had obviously Doherty. What Doherty did was amazing, but for me at the time, um, when George Graham came in, I was about ten, and I was really getting into into Millwall then, um, and it started following you know the, the, the tables and, and stuff like that and really properly following them and um, it was an awful season we'd started with Peter Anderson spending a lot of money well by Millwall standards at the time sort of virtually promising promotion and, and we were just diabolical really really bad getting some absolute really bad results you know real taterings and stuff and then uh, I remember my dad telling me they got George Graham and it, it didn't mean I'd, I'd heard of him uh, but the mum and dad being really pleased, so you know, it'll be really good. It was about sort of Christmas time, start of Christmas. And I think they actually got worse soon after he, he took over. They were getting even more, beaten even more. But he sort of gradually pulled them out. And they were, they were virtually they were dead and buried when he arrived. And they were as good as in the fourth division, which at the time, it was a pretty horrible prospect. And the transformation was just ridiculous. He, he put a load of the old players, because Anderson brought a lot of old, old players in. He, he put a lot of that, he just... He just Put him in the reserves. He bought his own players. He bought, in, you know, he bought in just people like Lukowski, Puzak, you know, just sort of what seemed like journeyman players from other from other teams. I think Southampton were in the fourth division when he bought Lukowski and Puzak in, and um, and they were brilliant. He, he, he moulded such a good team, and they escaped relegation. That was probably one of my first really memorable games at the Den, which when we had, we played Brentford last home game, when we had to win to have any chance of staying up, and we beat them one nil. And again, the atmosphere that day was unbelievable. But just Graham just had a way of um, getting just just getting good results and building a good teams. You could, you could sense it. And a few of the players I spoke to from sort of the class of '79 who ended up playing under him, a couple of them said they didn't particularly like him as a bloke, but had nothing but respect for him as a coach. You know that, that he had that sort of aura when he walked into a room. Everyone sort of shut up. You know, um, and I think really I think it's a shame that the club was in a bit of a financial mess. I don't think he was very happy when we, he was pretty much forced to sell fashion at the Wimbledon. And inevitably, when Arsenal come knocking, there was only one, one thing he was going to do. But I think, had it not been for the, the money troubles the club had at the time, I think he almost certainly would have got us in, into the first division without a doubt. But yeah, I think for me, probably because it was the first time I'd tasted success as a Millwall fan, 
and he was the manager that brought it really. So I think that's why he probably goes down. But obviously, Docky is a very, very close second. No, yeah, definitely. So on to what a lot of people seem to think this is quite a tricky question, but what's the worst Millwall player you've ever seen? Yeah, yeah. I do. I think I always, yeah, I always think best and worst is for a nightmare because you, you, you think about it and when you decide and then half an hour later you think of someone else. But um, yeah, there's been some stinkers, but I think the worst, I, I, fairly recent, I had to go for Gary Taylor Fletcher. And I think, I felt a bit, I think he gets to quite a bad, he actually feels sorry for the bloke, for the player. If you go beyond, if you go beyond disdain, beyond hatred and you actually start to pity them, then I think that's when you know they're in a bad place. I think Gary Taylor Fletcher epitomised the, the Ian Holloway period, didn't he really? Because he, you had a player who was, he was a, a decent striker, he had a good pedigree, he scored goals yeah. in the top five divisions of English football, you know. He scored goals in the Premier League for Blackpool. Um, and he should really have been a sort of Steve Claridge sort of signing. He should have been one of these players. It's been, you know, he's done it all. He scored goals at every level. It should have been easy for him. And just in, in what was so typical of Ian Holloway, he just, it just went from bad to worse. And I say there was all sorts of jokes about him online and stuff about his, uh, his physical appearance. And, but for me, uh, that was just like, at the time when it, I think it was quite close to when we were almost, we were relegated anyway, and it was like the sort of the final nail in the coffin, and you thought that just, just yeah, for me, it epitomised a really miserable time um, in the club's history. There, there's been some bad players, but uh, but yeah, that one for me, I think has to has to be the highest, the, the, the top one. So, what's the worst away player you've ever seen play at the Den? Yeah, that was a weird one because. Um, um, a lot of players are affected by the um, the atmosphere down there, aren't they? And I think they'll have like uh, stinkers purely based on the, the, the flat they're getting from the fans. Um, what's his, was it Chilwell, the Leicester fullback? Yeah, was it, 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 who didn't was want to speak from Chilwell? Is it Ben? Yeah, he was only a youngster at the time, wasn't he? And and you know there was it was it was seems it was quite funny that the thought that they'd actually sort of influenced these. And we've we've had players down there who've been stubbed because of the stick living game. I don't think that necessarily, I mean, Paul Birch, who I'll come to you later, was a classic example, but he was a very good player. But I had to choose um, someone who had a real stinker, but he actually played in our favour, and that's uh, Christian Daly for West Ham. Yeah, he had a nightmare, which but obviously it was great for us, because, yeah, he just had a stinker. And I think he gave away a penalty. And he, he just had a nightmare. And the more he, obviously, with one of them, the more he tried to dig himself out of it, the worse it got. And it was just. Um, it was captain as well, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, and you say it was the icing on the cake for a, for a memorable game, really. But so, yeah, I'm sure when I go away now, I'll think of three or four that are even worse than that. But um, that's what stands out. <laughs> so, yeah. um, the most memorable match involving Millwall. Yeah, I'm going to be boring and say the whole game because I mean, there's been obviously been a lot, but whole away, it it was just it was just perfect really. Because I remember um, I was trying to persuade my dad to go with me. It was a it was a bank holiday Monday, end of the season, um, but he wouldn't. He had a thing about going to away games. He didn't like travelling anyway, as it was, um, and he was really superstitious. And he knew all about Mill's history against various opposition, and he's he's. Standard phrase of we never we never win there we never beat them and he's oh we never win at Hull you know we won't 
So he was so he, he preferred to stay at home, sit by the radio, and and if it all went pear shaped, then he could just he wouldn't have to a six hour coke fry to endure. But there was no way I was going to miss that, and everything about it was just perfect. Um, I think I went the Bricklayers Arms Pub uh, in the Elephant and Castle. I don't think it's there anymore, but um, they organised the coach and. I went with my cousin with that, and we left about eight in the morning. And the atmosphere all the way was just brilliant. And uh, it was, it was obviously, we, we, and we scored quite early, Kevin O'Kelly penalty, and we, we clung on. And, and yeah, the, the scenes afterwards, on the terraces, the people on the pitch, in the car park afterwards, and the coach on the way home, it was just, yeah, I just don't imagine you'll ever beat that, really. I mean... How old were you? I was just short of my 16th birthday then. Yeah, a couple of weeks short of 16. So I was, yeah, it was my last year at school, at school full of uh, Palace fans. So I was, we moved out to sort of South Norway by then. So we had all, had all Palace fans to go back to the next day. And they were all hoping that we'd beat Blackburn the following Saturday so they could get in the playoffs. And of course, we lost 4-1 and kept them out of the playoffs, which was even better. So, yeah, so yeah it was a win all round, that for me. <laughs> Question 11, slightly similar, but but not to a degree. What's your favourite ever Millwall game? Um, favourite game or was it favourite Millwall moment? Oh, sorry, favourite ever Millwall yeah, moment. Right. Sorry, yeah. Michael. Just trying to trick you yeah. the questions you've already answered. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I figured them out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got asked this um, a while back. And like I say, there's a lot of obvious ones, like the final whistle at Hull and final whistle, Old Trafford, the semi-final, um, stuff like that. But for me, it, it was it definitely, a, the FA Cup final obviously was pretty special. But um, I remember as a kid watching my first ever Cup final. Um, must have been about seven. So it was the same season that I went to my first game. I think the final was Arsenal West Ham 1980. And, and I was sort of quite taken aback by how the whole country came to a standstill. Back then, it was such a massive TV event. Yeah. The coverage would start at like half 11 in the morning. I mean, they'd even cut like bloody swap shop and Tiswell short to start the cup final coverage. And the ITV and BBC would be going, would be competing to see who could do the best coverage. I mean, I read the commentator Brian Moore's autobiography a while ago, and I read it again recently. And he talked about how the, the competitiveness between ITV and BBC showing the same event. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that did, you know, they'd have celebrities come out when celebrity wasn't a big thing then. They'd have celebrities coming out saying they supported and all sorts of speckled. And I just, I was taken back by the whole, um, just the, the, the way, what an event it was. Even my mum, who hates football, would sit down and watch it. And I remember the build-up to it, and then the band come out on the pitch, and they start, they struck, and they started doing a bide with me, which was obviously the traditional cup final hymn. And all the fans of both teams were singing it. And even then, at like age seven, it sort of made the hairs in the back of your neck stand on him because it was such an amazing sound. And I remember thinking, imagine being in that crowd, you know, 100,000 people at Wembley, and you're singing, you know, you know, like it's like giant bloody church and you're singing just before your team plays in the biggest game in the world. I'm thinking, imagine what that would be like. And I used to discuss it with my dad. Imagine if that was Mill, you know, any sort of thing, it's never going to happen. So, of course, 2004, it wasn't Wembley, but it was Cardiff. And I'm stood there and I've got my dad on one side and my, my son's on the other. And of course, it, was a bit, it wasn't quite a, wasn't the same sort of band, but even so, it, you know, a vibe with me started and everyone sang along to it. And it was a real sort of lump in the throat moment, you know, to think, you know, I thought about all those cup finals that I've watched of all these teams who were like, you know, big, big teams. And you thought at the time, Mill in the third division, you thought that's never going to be Mill. And I thought, 
for it to finally happen was, was so I think that has to be that moment has to be the best one for me I think yeah definitely yeah, I mean I agree the FA Cup back in the day was was special I mean the helicopters following the coaches and yeah, you know, yeah. turn up at the ground or the hotel and they used to you know you might have a camera on on the on the coach briefly before it left and you never really had live footage what you got now yeah we take it for granted now because obviously camera phones and that sort of thing but the um the thing about say again in, in the Brian because Brian Moore he was one of my favorite commentators he was he was absolutely brilliant and in his book he was talking about say that competition between ITV and BBC he was ITV at the time and they were trying to outdo each other um, and they said they had, they had a bit of a, a nerd working behind the scenes there and said, um, what if we could get a camera on the coach with a team coach? And they said, oh, you can't, that's ridiculous. You, know, you, need a, you need, where are you going to plug it in? All that sort of thing. So they put a generator, they took all the luggage out and put a generator in the luggage hold of the coach and powered the camera off of that so they could do live interviews on the team bus to one of the teams. And it sort of knocked the BBC out of the water. And that was, so that was, that was and you think how easy that is now to do, but there, back then it was like uh, putting man on the moon then. Uh, but yeah, that's the sort of events they went to, yeah, to sort of bring, make the coverage sort of super special. So, question 12, um, your funniest ever Millwall moment? Um, yeah, not don't such a moment, the, more of a... the Cardiff game where the fella fell off the... Off the nah, nah, that's <laughs> probably up there. But, um, but yeah, I, think I mentioned, I touched on it earlier, uh, Paul Birch, I think you mentioned Paul Burks to any Millwall fan of a certain age, and they'll remember the FA Cup uh, fourth round replay, 1986, I think it was. And we got a draw up at Villa, and we brought them back to the den. Because a bit like that nowadays, we felt capable of beating anyone then. And Villa were a half-decent top-flight team then. Uh, midweek game, I think we had a penalty. We had a penalty first half, and we missed it. I think Les Bryant took it and missed it. But anyway, Birch is playing on the, obviously, if you remember, he had bright blonde curly hair and he's playing on the wing down the halfway line. And every time he comes near the ball, he gets wolf whistled. Um, and it was getting to the point where the whole crowd um, were doing it. And I think, I think it was Turner, Graham Turner, not Taylor, it was Turner was a Villa manager. And to try and give him a bit of relief, he put him on the other wing and that didn't work. He was still, he was still getting it. And he eventually took him off. And like I say, he was he was a good player as well, Birch. I think he um, a very very good player. And I think we ended up winning that night as well. So it's one of those sort of memorable FA Cup nights at the Den. And that was it became it became the stuff of legend. I think even that I've spoken to Aston Villa fans who even remember him there, and even they admitted it was pretty brutal, but but also quite funny. But um, but yeah, that for me always stands out as a as a funny moment. There's a few um, there's a few funny moments sort of. I've got on. I think Millwall fans as a whole are a a very um, old-fashioned sense of humour group of fans, and yeah, you know they're, yeah. they're they're instant. As soon as they see something, it will be instant where the joke will come. Oh God, up. yeah. You know, like yeah, look at the yeah. photos over the last ten years where the copper gets handcuffed, handcuffs on the back of him on his belt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The bench. yeah. We've had yeah. you know the Sheffield Wednesday leg and. Other bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, yeah. I think they're all they're all very very funny. So, so yeah. So yeah, this is it. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll I'll think of ten more probably within the next hour. But that always sticks in my mind is because that it reminded me of you know when you was at school and you you do the humming to to to, to piss the teacher off. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah, everyone yeah. starts. Getting, yeah, yeah. I remember that doing that a few times. And even it got to it get to a point where. It, Every now and then it would get be, it'd be so successful that even the sort of the class nerds, the swaps would be doing it as well. Because so, yeah. 
and it become it felt so powerful. He, he was part of something so bloody powerful, and that was what it was like that night. It was just, but yeah, I mean, what I always loved about Dunham Mills, even when it was bad, and up and down, it was really bad. If the if the football was crap, the fans would just amuse themselves, you know. And some of the comments and stuff down there, when the bloke we used to stand behind us in the halfway line. Uh, never knew his name. We used to call him Ben Elton, but he'd, he'd rant and rave like Ben Elton at the time, and he'd like shout and stuff like, "Pay attention, Millwall," that sort of. And he'd have you in stitches. I mean, you'd walk away laughing your head in tears of laughter, and they'd got beat like two 0 or something like that. But you still had a laugh because there was so. Picture the scene: all of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Many characters down there. There's still characters now, I mean... You can walk around yeah, and there is. write a book on someone. Yeah. You know, people have arguments with their self or, you know, they come yeah. back to their seat thinking they're an armchair manager telling them how it should be done and yeah. all that. So, yeah, there's been, there's yeah. Been, I've witnessed some funny stuff down there. So um, Yeah, I just think it's a shame that the, um, the seats sort of took a bit of that spontaneity away because, you know, when people would sort of mill about a bit more and, and find their sort of favourite place and you'd end up getting... Near the same characters, I don't know. It was all a bit seemed a bit easier to when, when, when it was the terraces, I suppose. But uh, but that's just the way it is. I'd love the terraces to come back, but I don't mm, know. Not not the current Millwall Stadium, yeah. you know, because it was made in all yeah. I don't know if it'd be ready. It'd need to have the corners built in, and then maybe make yeah. uh, corners into um, a complete terraced area. But again, you know, that's yeah. many years down the line. So um, yeah. What's your best story about following Millwall then? Uh, again, it's quite an old one. Um, a fellow I used to go to away games with, um, he was a bit, a bit older than me. He was one of the first ones to sort of be able to drive and he would just drive anywhere. Um, and in the promotion season, near the end, we played Leeds away. And um, I, couldn't, I couldn't go. It was a midweek. I mean, I was still at school and stuff like that. I couldn't go. And he said, oh, I'm going. Sod it. And he, he had like an old escort. And I think it was quite hard to get tickets as well because the police were trying to stop people and going, there was no train, there was all sorts of stories about putting mill fans off. So when he drives up there on his own in his escort, parks up, finds a pub in the city centre, which is fairly busy, walks in as he does with his leather jacket and his mill shirt on, goes up to the bar, says to the barman, I'll have a pint, please. And the barman says, um, probably best not being in here, mate. And, and he goes, oh, why not? He goes, well, full of leads. And he went, is it? And he apparently turns around, holds his hands up and goes, mill, it's a big, and the whole pub goes, mill, you know. So he tells us his story, and we're we're saying we're we're sort of doubting it a little bit. We're you know we're saying thinking it's a bit of an urban legend or it's it's uh, but he insisted it's true. And a couple of years later, we play Man City away in the first division, and he he drives us up there. And we get up there quite early. We get parked up, and pay the local kids a couple of quid to look after the car, or whatever. And there used to be a pub near City's old ground, main road, called the Princess, 
and next to the coach station. Uh, no, no, it's perfect. Before you get into Manchester City Centre, you, you just come off the, the motorway, right. and it was a massive old pub. You know, apparently, yeah, away fans would, would, would gather in there because it was right near the away end part of Main Road. Anyway, we go in, we have a, have a pint, and there's only about 20 or 30 people in there. And we get talking to him about this story at Leeds again, and he, he swears blind it's true. And his theory is that there's, there were Mill fans in every pub and every away game. So he says, right, we don't believe. He goes to the bar to get another round of drinks, all his drinks, turns around, holds his arms up and goes, Mill! And there's total tumbleweed, not a thing. And these old boys in the pub don't even look up from their pints, and, it, and he just comes walking back. So we doubted even more after that. He's, even to this day, I've, I've spoke to him a few years ago, he insists it happened, but... But that to me, yeah, the look on his face when he, he, he gave this big milk and it was, it was, it was priceless. That's one of the funniest things I remember from travelling away and stuff. If you're a Leeds fan and you're in that pub on that day, get in touch with Merv and let yeah. him know that it actually yeah, did. That be good. Yeah, because I'm sure they'd know about that. But yeah, if it's true, it'd be a great story if it was true. But it's the sort of thing, if you put it on Twitter, you'd get absolutely slaughtered. <laughs> but I think people would accuse you of uh, if it's not happening. So... Uh, Question 14, your favourite current yeah. player? Yeah, I think it has to be Jed Wallace, really, doesn't it? I think. I just think he sort of he sort of epitomises everything that the, the fan, Millwall fans have always liked. I mean, I know we've always liked the tough players, the likes of Kitchener and Cripps and Erlock and that sort of thing, but we also, Millwall fans also like their football. Um, and they like players to be skillful and, and, and be, a bit, be a bit maverick, you know, and I think, Jeff Wallace has got all those those traits. I think he just he understands the club, you know, and some of the things he he says on Twitter, and little things like I think someone had a, had a pop at him on Twitter a few a couple of years ago. I think it might have been. Um, I can't remember they accused him of being too flat. Yeah, I remember now when, um, yeah. he was a passionate was saying when he and he come back and. But he was dead apologetic about it. I, th I think someone accused him of trying to trying to overcomplicate something. He, he was trying to do a step over or a back heel, and all he needed to do was. And he came in and explained it, and he was dead honest about it. And I thought, he didn't need to do that. You know, he, he was like explaining it as if he was explaining it to his manager. And that's, I think, the sort of respect he's got for the, for the fans, which is really, really rare. And, you know, he's obviously been at the club a while. But, and he just, uh, it's, it's, a, it's such a cliche, but he just gives absolutely everything all the time. You know, even when, you know, he's a sort of player when we're two or three and down, he'll still be running his guts out, you know. And that's, I think, it's all you want, really. It was interesting as well because he still carried on after Savile went. You would have thought that he, it was sort of like yeah. a partner in crime sort of disappeared. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, it didn't. But now, I suppose. So, question 15. We're kicking through nicely and then we'll do a bit about the book in a bit anyway. So, question mm. 15. Um, your best away day following Millwall? Yeah, obviously. Uh, what you can remember. Yeah, but um, obviously, Hull aside, uh, I think Tranmere in the FA Cup, that, that, that's a memorable one, That because that, that was massive, because I'm always a bit pessimistic, I thought we'd blown the chance, drawing at home with them, missing the penalty, and they're always a tough team on there, so I managed to get tickets to get to go to that one, we went, and, and we just played so well, and, you know, it was, and I remember that night, uh, in the last few minutes, it was 2-1, and it was all getting a bit nervy. Um, I decided my bottle went. I decided to go down to the toilets and the concourse, and I went down. There and there's about and there's, it's just packed full of Millwall fans pacing up and down. And Richard Sadley was stood down there as well. He was there that night. Um, but yeah, I mean to get to an FA Cup semi-final, and of course into Europe with that win was was amazing. 
Um, Bournemouth away on the promotion season as well. That was a midweek game. We took so many there. The video, the videos on YouTube, and the, the scenes of the away end behind, behind Brian Owen's goal. Um, and we went two 0 up. We were really cruising. Herlock got got a cracker. Um, and then Bournemouth come back and they got a penalty in the last minute down at our end, and we thought we'd blown it. And then Horn pulls off this save, and the scenes after that were really good. And you sort of sort of felt we was up then, really. But um, yeah, again, it's one of them. You, you, you think of it a different one every time, really. Every time someone asks, you think of a different memorable away game. But um, but that for me, that those 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 sort of stick in my mind most. I mean, the the next question, I suppose, really sort of ties in, 16, 17, sort of tying together to a degree. Yeah. I mean, what's your most disliked opponent um, ever? And obviously, what, what do you class as Millwall's um, top three rival? Right, yeah. So, my, my most disliked, I think the dislike one with Millwall is quite divided because obviously a lot of Millwall fans hate West Ham and yeah. some hate I think it depends where you brought up. So I say we moved out to, to sort of South North sort of Palace territory, really. Um, so I was at school with Palace fans. Um, and, and I'd say you know, some of my best mates were Palace fans as well. But just it was always Palace. And I think, for me, I think a rival has to be someone you're playing quite often as well, really. And during the 80s, when I was sort of, during that time when I was at school, we weren't playing West Ham at all, with the exception of that similar Cup game in 87. So I think it was harder, yeah, it was harder to, to treat them as a rival and sort of hate, have any hatred for them if you weren't playing them. Yeah. And you couldn't sort of generate that bad blood, you know. And um, we had a real sort of topsy-turvy time with Palace in the 80s. I mean, we, we knocked them out of the cup in 85, I think it was, um, when we were in the third and they were in the second. And then when we went up, they beat us at their place after we sort of gone ahead and we beat them at our place. And then the draw in the, in the promotion season at our place when... when it was when we were ripped, we were robbed in the last minute, that Jim Cannon goal, stuff like that. And, it all, and of course, all the, the, the stuff, all the sticks you get at school and stuff like that. Uh, and they all come out of the woodwork when they, when they beat you and that sort of thing. And that sort of definitely builds that hatred up for Palace, definitely. But, um, but yeah, after the fan base as well, I just find it just a bit embarrassing, you know. Um, Crying the crow. Yeah, yeah. Something... Um, like I say, that Malcolm Allison period at Palace in the, in the mid-70s when they had all that, um, the, the good youth team and that, but they, they went through a whole rebranding and they, the fans were quite happy with them to totally change the kit, change the nickname of the of the, the club, you know, they changed it from the Glazers to and they all went, just went along with it, which it's sort of, I find that really weird. It's, obviously, you'd never get away with it at Mill. I mean, Theo tried it, didn't he? You know, and he got he got quite far. He probably got further than most, but he brought back. He was very clever with it. He brought back the all white kit, which a lot of fans were keen to see. He changed the badge, you know. And but at the same time as Alison at Palace was made making those changes, Gordon Jago was trying to do something similar at Millwall, and he and they were having none of it quite right. You know, I think he wanted to change Cold Blow Lane to Montego Bay Boulevard or something ridiculous like that. He, he wanted to soften the whole. Make it all more user friendly and family friendly, and that just, just wasn't Millwall. So they've all tried the same thing over the years to make yeah. Millwall more of a commercial entity, and mm. it doesn't work. Um, no, you no. know it, it. It's pretty much we would be happy if we went down there on a on a Saturday and sat on hay bales and watched the team. Yeah, yeah. As long as we can get, I mean, you know, the things what should change never do, and the things what shouldn't yeah. change they always. Do. Yeah, area. Yeah, area to me should be lower tier. 
um, because that yeah. way the kids can always get the autographs and stuff like that. I think the fact that it would be nice if you can get a beer during half time without missing most of the second half would be great. Getting a, a, yeah. a hot, decent pie or a hot, decent yeah. sausage roll, etc. But I think, yeah. You know, yeah, standard stuff, really, isn't it? But none of that changes, but they change other stuff, yeah. you know. They're, they're yeah. make, um, and a lot of it's probably through the FA. Uh, the FA sort of, you know, money. Unfortunately, money's in football now, and, and money talks, uh, advertising, etc. etc. be interesting to see where it goes after all of this, because once yeah. the coronavirus yeah. stuff goes, I mean, mm. you only need to look online and stuff, and advertising has basically taken a drop. Advertising fees have just dropped out. Yeah. Um, mm. and it'll be interesting to see where that goes going forward. Our, our companies can all want to pay you know, 50, 100 million pound a year um, for sponsoring football matches. Um, yeah, yeah. After all of this, or will they even have the money? Yeah. So, okay, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So what's your top three rivals then? Palace, obviously, at the top. Yeah, I put Palace at the top. Um, it's probably a bit of a controversial on this, but again, it's because of the point of, of, I think, playing someone regularly and having a bit of, you know, a bit more incident with them makes them more of a rival sometimes. I mean, a good example of this is in the old promotion years, early 2000s under Mark McGee. Wigan became a big rival. You know, we bloody hated them. You know, and it's not, it's not like the Palace-Brighton thing. Well, I suppose it is in a way because there was the Palace-Brighton thing came about through bad blood between Matthew Madison and, and um, Alan Mullery. But uh, that was personalities thing. But actual on the pitch stuff, it's all started. Wigan beating us in the... Auto glass or the windscreen shield final in '99. We thought that was a gimmick. We went there and we thought, oh, we'll murder them. We've got 50,000 fans here, they got five. We've already beaten them, I think, home and away in the league. And of course, they, they sniffed us with that handball goal at the end. And that started it all off. And suddenly they were a promotion rival and they, knocked, they beat us in the playoffs. And suddenly it's, it's become one of the games you're looking for, which is bizarre, you know. So I think in that respect, I think I'd have to put Leeds up there. But um, it, it's, and it's become quite quite hilarious the, the sort of the way Leeds fans totally deny that they, they give a monkeys about us and they clearly do because no, it doesn't take off, them long yeah and we so Robert Leeds or Robert Leeds whatever his name is the one on Twitter or used to be he's blocked most of us now oh he right yeah comes out with everything I mean anything we do they they hate you know they can do whatever they want but as soon as we do anything yeah. they hate it um, oh yeah they keep throwing the family club of the year thing in your faces like they've like they come up with stuff they've got some Real big put down, although they 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 uncovered something really, really sort of real sort of revelation. But it's but I mean it's a cliche that I hate to be honest on on Twitter at the moment. But um, it is true for for Millwall ladies, and that is well living rent free in their their heads definitely because they, they've got this little obsession about us. And you, you honestly believe when they beat us at their place this season and last season after we sort of have been ahead. Yeah. I think that, that's one of their arms. That's one of their for them, one of their biggest wins of the season was to, was to come from behind and beat us, given that we, we always sit in the beat them hard. But I think it really bugs them. That's the thing. I think it's... So, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, I think when we had the regen battle, what that, what that showed was that we were pretty much most people's guilty secret. You know what I mean? That we were yeah. most people's guilty pleasure. Everybody hates us, mm. but actually yeah. everybody would love to, to support us or everybody loves Millwall. Um, yeah. They don't necessarily publicly do, but definitely what that showed was behind the doors. Most people actually wouldn't want to be without us. Yeah, yeah. 
there's definitely sort of an envy of it as well. I mean, I, I remember even um, this is going back to some school days when uh, a few Palace fans would actually admit that you know there was something just just really good about Mills following about how they had their own songs. It's like Palace would just Palace would just take on the latest song and just change the words to suit Palace and do that. But yeah, Mills always had its own identity, and I think. So many football clubs, even ones with strong identities, like such as Leeds, have given in to, yeah, have sold out really, just just because of the, because of the sort of the, the Premier League and that sort of thing. And I think I think they envy the fact, and people will say as much on Twitter, they envy the fact that we haven't done that and don't look like doing it anytime soon, which is which is good. No, I agree. So if you could change anything, um, what would you change about Mill itself? Yeah. Or, um. Yeah, I, I'm wary of changing anything. So, yeah, I mean, is there one result that you'd want to change, or is it? Oh, right. You know, okay. Sorry, right. If, if you could change anything, well, well, you know, what would you change? Oh God, yeah. So I read this question. I must admit, I read this question. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got to admit. Um, yes, I do know. I wish we could change the result of that Birmingham playoff semi-final, two thousand and two, because that team. That was the one oh, where the crowd team was. That we yeah, it all went. Yeah, um, but that team. I mean, when you look at that that, that team we had under McGee that, that had won the league the year before, and the players, and, and you look at some of the footage of that season, and we absolutely destroyed teams. It was so good, and and, and yet again, typically Mill, we were so unlucky with injuries. We had at the crucial running of the season. I think Tim Cale got injured for a few games. Sadly, was injured. Obviously, we were about Harris because of his illness. I think if we'd have had that season of a fully fit Harris, Kale, sadly. I mean, Dion Dublin coming in and did a good job, don't get me wrong, but I think we'd have been in a position to bring Dublin in anyway to strengthen the team like we did with Clarity the year before. Without injuries, that team would have, would have won that league over Man City. I'm you, you're on about the, the present day, the, the, the fairly modern. You're on about the Birmingham game, the playoff final. The play, the, um, playoff the, semi-final. semi-final. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it was the one that ended up with the riot. Yeah, um, which again, it was, I mean, it was. It was. I remember. Um, I think I was doing some some work with the supporters club at the time, and a fella. Um, what's his name? Can't remember his name now. Um, Steve Frangu, I think his name was. He was a, a really nice guy. He was and and at the time, Theo was very close to the supporters club, and he was he, he, he would chat to them. And he said when Theo was summoned to that meeting with the. the police commissioner or the Met Police guy and he actually tore him off the strip and said he'd never been so scared in his life, you know, and he was, a, Theo was no sort of, no sort of slouch. And I think that the, the club really suffered from that. And yet, the fact that the club were getting blamed for, for people outside in the local estates lobbing, lobbing stuff to the police, it had nothing really to do with the club, it's just sort of, was sort of typical. But, but again, I think it was a bit of a 1972 moment. We got that close to getting the Premier League. So I think we'd have, we'd have won the final. But we shouldn't have even been. We should have. We should have won the league that year without a doubt. So yeah, I think I'd love to change that and not have that bloody last-minute stern John goal going. And maybe have had. Uh, I think Dublin had a really good chance in that game, and to have won that and gone to the final and got in the Premier League. And, and who knows where we'd have gone from there? I mean, I'm not. I'm not that desperate to get in the Premier League, but I just think that team was so good. The likes of Sadlier and Harris and Cale and Reed and Eiffel yeah. deserve deserve to play on the, the, the best stage with that with, with Mill, to be honest. No, I agree with you. I think it would have been good just to mm. see whether or not, you know, I mean, the Premiership as a whole, even now, 
I'd love to go out there for one season, just to have yeah, some good home days, some good home days, yeah. take the money. But I, I think yeah. it would absolutely suffocate Millwall to an inch of his life. Um, yeah, the Premier yeah. League. I mean, I can remember. Yeah, I can remember even in the old first division, um, standing on the halfway line, and there'd, there'd be arguments breaking out about, oh, you know, where were you? Where, where were you in like the last? Where were you when we were losing over Chesterfield and that? And, and people, because obviously we were averaging like 16,000 after after years of averaging two or three, four or five thousand. Yeah. And and it didn't sit well with a lot of the fans. We used, we used to laugh about it and think, well, you know, I think we were happier when we were in the the, the third division. And when I, I talked to, I know a few sort of Man City fans who actually aren't enjoying all their success, would you believe? And said that if you were happier when they were, you know, when, when they were getting beat and being crap because they. Because they had a ground that they liked, you know, they, they're in a similar position. They moved away from a ground that they had a lot of, they were very fond of. And, and as I said, it's all just too different now, you know. Mossside was the first council estate in England to fit bulletproof and fireproof doors. Well, I'm not surprised, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, I mean, Main Road back in the day was a dangerous place. I mean, yeah, was, yeah, you know, it, yeah. It was, it was a dangerous place to be. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I suppose football change and everything else. So, um, question 19, all-time yeah. favourite shirt? Yeah, it's the 88-89 the Lewisham home shirt, I think. The first one in the first division. I remember getting, I remember buying that and being really impressed with the little the little, um, ins, the little moniker over the, the badge to say, you know, the first division. I thought it was a nice touch there, unusually nice touch there. Mill to put that on, and I was really, yeah, really impressed with that. And it just, yeah, it just evoked so many memories. That little, that, those, uh, those faded diagonal stripes and that Lewisham logo, and and it just, just reminds you of like some really great days, and like beating Everton at home, and going um, one and up at Liverpool in front of the cop and that sort of thing. It was, yeah, probably iconic shirt, man, definitely. Have you still got one? Or I did have. Uh, I, funnily enough, I don't know if you saw the post on Twitter the other day. Um, some woman said her, her son had collected all these collection of Millwall shirts to take, and she laid them all out on the floor and there was like 30 years of Millwall shirts and it was brilliant and I, and I thought I wish I'd kept mine but we got to a stage where mine was taking up a whole wardrobe and it was you know it was, it was getting a bit ridiculous so I ended up flogging them off on bloody eBay would you believe I think I got about 90 quid for that 80, 80, 80, 90. It, didn't, it certainly didn't fit me anymore that's for sure but, um, but yeah I really regret it now I wish I'd kept them but uh, I don't know where I'd have put them no, that's it, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. So, last question, and then we'll do a bit on the books. Um, yeah. I'm going to set a question for the, um, for the, what do you call it, so that people have to watch. What's, yeah. what's your best piece of Millwall memorabilia you you, uh, you own? Yeah, it's not, not, not a single piece, to be honest, but um, it's with, with programmes, I think. I've got, got pretty much every programme from the games I went to, and then my dad started sending them up to me as well. Um, when he the games he went to and and I've got them just all on shelves behind me here on about three shelves. Um and it's just great to look back on. Um obviously it's been really handy for me to search through books. But they're just they're just quite fascinating when you go back and you look at, at a season and you flip through them and it sort of takes you right back. Even silly little things like the adverts in them and and just the way they're sort of laid out. And it's just it, it takes you right back. You can actually remember yourself back in that particular season, buying that programme, reading that programme. I know they're not as popular anymore, but um, but yeah, and I think that it, it's, a, it's a great thing to add, to look back on. And I quite, I quite enjoy sometimes flipping through a few, and you'll see sometimes a funny article, or you'll see like a, a player 
who was in the youth team at the time, a funny photo. Um, I think I put one of um, Alan Dunn when he signed as a 14-year-old apprentice yeah, the other yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll sort of, sort of scan it in, I'll whack it on Twitter, and it's quite a laugh to sort of share that with people, you know. So uh, that's definitely my favourite. Sort of, yeah, I like the, obviously, the Millwall Museum is, uh, is quite active. They're, they're currently looking to raise some money to get some bits and pieces mm-hmm. going and get finalised to move forward. I mean, I, I, when I was fan of the board, I, I helped mm. as much. Um, and it, now it looks mm. as if they've got a community centre and they're going to be doing stuff in there and whatnot. But they've got loads and loads of the old No One Likes Us um, mm. fanzine and yeah. Roar and, and, and some other fans. And you read back yeah. from some of them and they are really, really well-written pieces. There's some real yeah, funny, oh, uh, funny pieces. Good, yeah, from day one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, I think the internet's killed it all now. I, I don't think yeah, you get the fans oh, yeah, yeah. used yeah. to. Um, you yeah. still get Lions Raw with Aisha. Um, but I, yeah, think, yeah. You know, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to get people to write stuff. It's hard to, you know, gone are the days of, you know, people wanting to sell them now. Is that standing yeah, around yeah. on the corner trying to sell stuff, um, yeah. which, is, which is hard work. Yeah. So we're doing, um, we're doing this, uh, who are you, this special, who are you with you, um, obviously to plug your book. And yeah. um, you've obviously got a couple of others. We know that you're working on another one to go forward, um, which obviously yeah. details will go going out. But, the ordinary boys was that just a, a natural follow-on from what you wrote before with the um because you wrote four and you wrote you wrote you wrote the um three even you wrote um because my dad because my dad did and then obviously yeah. done the one after yeah. i've got all of them somewhere but yeah yeah well what it was um because my dad does was i suppose you could call it semi-autobiographical i suppose because it talked about that promotion season but it was also about me and my dad um what it was, I don't know if you, I mean, there's a, there was a brilliant history of the club done by a fellow called James Murray called the, the Lions of the South. I've got it right you got that there, it's my bed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. that was, yeah, and it must, it must be one of the most comprehensive, detailed club histories ever, because, I mean, it's brilliant, it's such a good book. Unfortunately, it ended at the start of the 87-88 season, obviously had to finish it somewhere, and um, so it sort of finished as they were getting ready to, for that season when they got promotion to the first division and it was brought out just before they got promotion. Um, and I thought it was a shame he never followed it up. But I think James Murray is now a whiskey expert. Yeah. Um, he um, he publishes something called the Whiskey Bible. Okay. Um, yeah. So I sort of thought, well, there's a, obviously there's a pretty big hole in Mill's history now. You've got obviously that season they went up and you've got the season they were, the seasons they were in the first division. And after that, so obviously, I, my second book was a natural high. That was the two seasons we spent in the top flight. Yeah. Um, and I was going to go from there, I was going to go, and I still intend to go on from there and, and cover the 90s and that sort of thing. But um, I got chatting to Phil Coleman on Facebook just um, on the off chance one day, and I was and I was really impressed by his sort of, sort of depth of knowledge and his passion for that, that sort of time. Um, and that got me thinking, you know, it's, it's a story that every Millwall fan knows about. I think most of your players know they won the Youth Cup. And I thought, but I wonder if they understood how, um, what an achievement it was. You know, when you look into it and you research it a bit, it was a massive, massive achievement, you know. So it got me sort of researching it. And I thought there was 
quite a big story to tell, not least because of the state the teeth club was in at the time as well. It was a lot of financial trouble and had lots of, um, you know, there was big trouble on the pitch, on the, on the territory, and there was an Uligan trouble, which was probably partly stoked up by the Panorama programme. Yeah, which, yeah, seven, yeah. Again, was, yeah, yeah, which was pivotal in the club's history as well. And suddenly there was like a real big story there, I thought, that, to be told. So I sort of met up with Phil, and I spent about four hours chatting to Phil and going through all these scrapbooks and stuff like that. And he's still in touch with the players, and I, I spoke to a few of them, and they had some good stories. And it, it sort of it went from there, really, and, and that's that's how that came about. And I thought it was, like I say, such a good achievement because I think at the time, um, I think Mill was only the fourth team from outside the top flight to, to, to win it or to get to the final. Um, and there's not been many since. I think Mill was still the only team to get to two different finals in different eras from outside the first division. I think Palace did it twice in a row with the same team. Um, to me, we're the only team to sort of win it twice with different squads, you know, different times. But when you look at it, when you look at how hard it was to win that tournament, even though it is a youth team tournament, it was a massive achievement. And a lot of these clubs, like Palace had loads of money thrown at them at that time. And, um, and other teams that, that won it, and other, you know, it, that was a big part of their club's investment was in the youth team. It wasn't a mill, it was all like a typical, typically improvised. I mean, the, the, the coach who was really was instrumental and it was a, a guy called Oscar, Oscar Arthur, Argentinian coach, who was a bit of a Pep Guardiola, to be fair. And every player mentioned him, said he was so ahead of his time. He was all about technical skills and passing, that sort of thing. I mean, he cobbled together like a, a training, he cobbled together like a fake wall out of some old timber. And he ripped the, the wheels off the bloody wheelie bin or the, the paladin metal bins to use as a, a rollable sort of wall so they could practice bending it around the wall, that sort of thing, you know. And it was just unheard of. And they said he was all about, you know, the ball at your feet and that sort of thing. And he always he had a big influence on them. And unfortunately, he left when Jago went after the Panorama business. But um, it's all little fascinating stories like that, you know, um, that came out of it. Um, we're going to go into some more of those stories on a, on another interview we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to pick yeah. up with. Um, mm. I suppose it's quite a sad, sad thing. I mean, I, um, it, it was quite a weird story. I met, Tony for a friend of mine. Um, mm. I've met Tony before, previous a while back, but I yeah. met Tony for a friend of mine who said, "Look, you know, I remember you were talking about looking to do something with Alzheimer's, um, yeah. and there's something what I've been looking into for a while, and I'm talking to a few people, and we're looking to put something together where we I've read yeah. a lot on uh, Alzheimer's um, football and Alzheimer's has a real connection that a lot of people with yeah. Alzheimer's can use football to gain memories from past." And yeah, yeah, of course. Tell me what we were going to do with Tony because obviously his dad was really ill, suffering on early insets of, yeah. of Alzheimer's. But he was in America. Yeah. So, what we were going to do was look at fans to try and get fans to give us stories of games back in the day. And then we were going to collate yeah. them into an email and then basically send them to his dad and then the nurse yeah. or his, his mum or you know, his, his, his dad's wife, etc., can read the stories. And watch him, yeah. or you can read him to him on FaceTime and go through there. Um, and then all of a sudden, your book mentioned him, Ted Lee. Yeah, yeah. And then That's right. Tony was made up, and Tony's like, oh, you know, I'm in this book, blah, blah. And I said, well, I know the fella who's that book is. And then obviously, I introduced you oh, to him. Yeah. And then the stories come. So hopefully, going forward, we'll have a bit more of that because obviously, there'll be the stories yeah. that you've done. And then obviously, he can come back with some stories from around there because. Yeah. Um, yeah. In your book, I mean, the full details obviously about Ted are yeah. in the book, yeah. Um, with the connection with, with a couple of players. So, I mean, 
I think what you did there when you sent the book to him and whatnot was a, a lovely gesture. Um, and I think, unfortunately, now rest his soul, Ted sadly passed away. But I think that gave Tony a bit of light, uh, you know, a bit of pleasure that he was able to tell his dad that he actually appeared in a book before he passed. Yeah, that was that was nice. Because I guess I'm trying to track him down because, um, like I said, it was one of the last interviews I did right near when the book was due to come out. And I did spend a bit of time trying to track, track him down, the lynches down, but I didn't have any success, unfortunately. It must have been just before you you got chatting to him, but um, but yeah, it was really nice to um to know that, that Ted did get to sort of see that. Um, but again, yeah, it, it, their, their story is just so typical of, of the sort of characters of the stories of the time, really. Well, I managed while you were talking. I managed to. If I've got I've got two books. I've got one by the great Chris Bethel and Dave Sullivan, the fifty million right, yeah. matches, yeah, um, or fifty of the finest matches of Millwall. And That's that the one. one, yeah, it's a cracker. If you're a Millwall fan yeah. and haven't got that book, it's not cheap. Um, no. I think it goes on eBay 30, 40, 50, 60 quid upwards because I don't think they, they make it anymore. Um, no. But yeah, Lions of the South by James Murray is yeah. probably a, yeah. a must for any, mm. uh, any Millwall yeah. fan for a background on history, um, really, yeah. about, about it. Ordinary Boys, how can people yep. get it? Um, I will put all the all the available links will be um, if you're listening to this on podcast then it will be in the description uh, if you're watching this on YouTube um, if you click in the description below you will have all the links uh, but those of you who want to write it down I mean Merv where where can people get hold of this and at the moment yeah because of the situation at the moment it's, you're better off going to Amazon um, it's on Amazon it's not it's taken a bit of time to deliver the paperback. It's, you know, things are a bit slower again at the moment. Whereas before it's like one or two days, now it's like a week or 10 days. But you can get it on Kindle as well, so that's like straight away. Um, and usually you, uh, you can get like it from ordinary boys at Code UK if you wanted like a signed copy or something like that. But um, that, at the moment, that's not, not possible at the moment because of the current situation. But, uh, but yeah, Amazon's probably the best place right now. So what I'll do is, the question for this book, and we'll pick the winner at random, the question for this book is obviously Ordinary Boys, um, the class of 79. What did yeah. this team win? Um, so, yeah, what did this team win? Uh, details of how to enter will be uh, in, the, in the description. Uh, we'll put an email address there and just send an email in with the answer in the, um, in the subject bar. And uh, and we're we're doing that with a closing day in full details. But this is a this is a signed book. Um, what Merv's kindly donated. So again, I don't want to do it too much. But it's a signed book from Merv. It's a great read. I'm about halfway through. Um, and it's quite addictive because you start reading it. I've, I've, I've read it um, when they received, and I've got about I don't know yeah. thirty pages in, and then you're thinking. Mm. Oh, I need to get back at that, and I need to get back at that, and yeah. I think that's yeah. that's the same with a lot of your books. You can they're very easy to read and and come back to. Um, homeschooling unfortunately takes over a lot of mine, but my yeah. kids need to read. I might yeah. start my Millwall history books and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean that's one thing I, I, I'm sort of they're very passionate about, to be honest. But um, but yeah, I purposely wanted to make in books sort of a bit shorter than your average uh, sort of book in a way a lot of people have said oh you know I finished it in a couple of days or because I think um, 
it's not not saying it's gone out of fashion, but not, not as many people read anymore again because of the internet and stuff like that. So I think if it's something you can you you, you feel like you can get through pretty quickly, uh, it's just short and snappy. I think it's more enjoyable because that was really what I aim to do, sort of make them a lot more user friendly. Um, and that's what I, what I try and do really. Did you write the book in? Did you write the book for for it to go out? And, and and go public. I mean, I know that sounds a stupid question, but did you make it so other people wanted to read it, or did you just write it that you wanted to put put it in print for yourself and and hope that people would enjoy it too? Was that the first one? Well, yeah. First I mean, all, all all of them yeah. to a degree. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're they're very they're very straightforward written and they're very easy to read. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. not a great reader. I mean, I read Kindle a bit, but I'm not a great reader. I prefer no, yeah. reading on, on online and stuff. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I just I try to make them as straightforward as possible. But yeah, I, I, I hope that people could relate to them. And, you know, I don't anticipate any of them sort of being bestsellers. But if, if a handful of Mill fans read them and enjoy them and, and tell me they've enjoyed them and want me to keep doing them, then I'm, I'm happy to do so. You know, it's, it is... I really enjoy doing it. It's really rewarding to sort of like when you sort of see that finished thing and then people are buying it and then telling you they enjoy it. It's, it's, it's really, it's really rewarding. It's, it's quite, yeah, it's quite, it's nice. So all three books are available from your website or from Amazon? Amazon probably best at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So before we end, um, yep. do you have any final thoughts? Any, any words of wisdom you'd like to, um, oh, I'd like to God. share with well, you could give them the vehicle, Reg, to the car that crashed into you if you want. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll see that again. Um, no, not not really. Um, words, words of wisdom for me all fans. It's, it's is there anything one. that you is there anything that you need help wise with um with future book or anything? Do you any any? Um, I'm always on the lookout. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing. I'm, I'm saying I'm starting to cover the nineties. I always like. Fan, fan stories and I tried to get a few in for the second one natural high and I think people were a little bit reluctant to, to come forward with them but I did get a few nice ones so yeah I mean if anyone's got any funny stories from from those sort of time from the 90s you know that, that that would be good definitely so they can sort of get in touch via Twitter or something like that but yeah I always like to get have that sort of side to it rather than just Telling people what happened, I like to sort of get the sort of other fans' angles as well. Excellent. Well, look, we are doing a couple of shows around Merv's book. Uh, we've done obviously. Who are you? We've got a Nicky Jackson interview coming out, obviously from a player from that era, and we have got an interview coming out with uh, with Merv, myself, and uh, and Tony Lynch, Ted Lynch's son, going uh, obviously how they got in with the Millwall times of, of the team of '79. Um, thank you very much for your time today, Merv. Um, no problem. I do appreciate it, and and no doubt we will speak soon. Um, so thank yeah, you very much, and uh, and that's it from us. If you enjoyed the show, then please do subscribe um, or give us a like. If you're following us on the podcast, then please remember to make a comment. Uh, we do read your comments; we are keen on those. And if you are following us on YouTube, you can make a comment. Uh, and please do make sure you subscribe and tick the bell so that you get all future publications much straight to your inbox. Again, thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for watching and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you.
Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really, we have a bike translator. Okay, so this bike feels like he's capable of a little more than just trips to the convenience store. Oh, also, he wants to let you know that you can buy a gallon of ice cream instead of a pint every time. <laughs> Those are his words. So he said roughly like, blink the last wheel. It doesn't really translate, but the way he said it was super funny. <laughs> Get 24-7 roadside assistance with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Roadside assistance subject to policy terms and limits and may require comprehensive coverage. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.